Well, as Dave so graciously said, my name is Matt, and uh, I'm the student director here at the church, and man, before we jump in, I'd just love to pray for us. So I'm going to pray for you guys, if you could pray for me. So, Well, Father, we're thankful for just the, the great honor it is to have your words in front of us, to, to open them, to, to hear from you. We just ask that today that we would we see you rightly, we would see Jesus rightly, and in light of seeing Jesus rightly, we'd see ourselves rightly and see our neighbors rightly. And so we just pray that, that most of all this morning that Jesus, you would be glorified and magnified. We pray this in his name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, my little girl uh, just turned two years old. And so like any good parents would do, we recently introduced her to Buzz and Woody in the gang and the world of Toy Story. And, uh, and much to her delight, when the movie ended one Saturday morning, and she said, more Woody, more Buzz, like she does after every movie, there was more Woody, and there was more Buzz, and there was a third one, and then there was a fourth one. And so you can imagine that the only thing we watch in our home right now is Toy Story. And so we, uh, we've, over the last couple of weeks, have been moving out of our old home and into a new one. And as I've been in and out of the living room and packing boxes and loading and occasionally sitting down to enjoy one of the movies myself, I can't help but notice um, weaving in and out this, this common thread throughout all these movies. And it's, and it's that of the outcast and the misfit finding a home and a friend. And, and if you're being honest, uh, if, you've, if you've watched any of these movies, you can't get the wonderful, iconic voice of Randy Newman out of your head, singing, you've got a friend in me. And my wife is tired of that as well, because if, <laughs> most people don't know this, but I just walk around the house singing little tidbits of songs, and so, um, and so I finally last night stopped myself mid-song, and, and a few seconds later she goes, see, that wasn't that hard. <laughs> But the reality is that, like all good stories, reflect the hearts of the people that make them. Uh, deep inside of us, we all have this longing for a family and a friend. But the problem is, right, that we know ourselves. And if we're all being honest, at some point in time, we've wondered if we aren't damaged goods or unwanted and that we might not be good enough to have that family and have that friend. And so we resonate even with kids' movies like Toy Story, um, and they'll even bring tears to our eyes because we see ourselves in them. And so the text we're looking at today is actually incredibly beautiful news for all of us as we encounter the moment in Jesus' life when he becomes known as Jesus, the friend of sinners. And so I want to start looking this morning with us at, uh, at verse 14, verses 14 and 15. So as he passed by, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so at first glance, this may not seem like that big of a deal, but at this time in history, specifically to the Jewish people, tax collectors were the worst of the worst, the most despised, treacherous, traitorous people that you could spend time with. The, the occupying Roman government would set a set amount for a region for tax collectors to um, come and get, and they would employ these men to come get these taxes from these people that live there. But the problem was that once they, they were able to get as much money as the, the Roman government wanted um, from them, they were able to keep the rest. And so extortion was the name of the game. 
And so because of that, when a Jewish man entered the employment of the customs service, he was immediately regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue, of all places. And their disgrace would even extend to their immediate family, and they would be disowned and not even be able to go home. And so Jews were forbidden to receive money from them, even from alms from them, uh, from a tax collector, since their revenue was seen as coming from robbery. And the contempt the Jewish people felt towards these men went as far as a ruling that said that you could lie to tax collectors with impunity. The simple touch of a tax collector would render your house unclean, not unlike what we heard last week, that of a leper. And it may even be that Jesus' contact with Levi would have actually been more offensive than that of his contact with the leper because the leper didn't choose to be one, but the tax collector did. And yet this is where we see Jesus in this passage, moving towards and dining with not only just tax collectors, but other sinners and outcasts. We don't find him in this moment sitting down to a feast with the rule keepers, but to those who they saw as outcasts and misfits. And so the reality is that every one of us, at least some of the time, and some of us all the time, or a lot of the time, we can identify with, with Levi. We can identify with these Sinners or outcasts, as they called them. Maybe you've actually been disowned by your own family because of something you've done or something that's been done to you. Or that seems like the impending reality that's coming around the next corner. Or maybe you've been the traitor in your own story. You might be thinking that if I only knew you, if I only actually knew the deep parts of your soul, the the things that you've done, the things that you've planned on doing, that not only would I not talk to you, but I would definitely not sit down to a meal with you. Maybe you're addicted to pornography or you've had an affair, you're having an affair. Maybe, maybe whatever it is, you would say it's far and above worse and more scandalous than anything I've just mentioned. You may have dragged yourself in today thinking that this is the last place that you would be welcome. No one here will give you time of day. And the beauty of this text is that you are exactly the type of person that Jesus wants to spend time with. Um, one of the main characters in C.S. Lewis's famous children's books, children's books, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, is a boy named Edmund. And Edmund is the youngest boy in this family and is constantly overshadowed by his older siblings, and it shows. He, he constantly feels overlooked, always wanting to be in charge but never allowed. And this is how we find him in the most famous book of the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when he meets the evil witch who's ruling Narnia and covering it in perpetual winter, always winter but never Christmas. And so upon meeting Edmund, she tempts him and entices him into doing the unthinkable, betraying his family. And just as is normally the case in these stories, we find Edmund later in the book regretting his decision because the grass actually wasn't greener on the other side. And the witch has tricked him, and she's actually about to take his life when swooping in to this story is the savior figure, the king, Aslan, snatching Edmund from the jaws of death not not a moment too soon. And after his rescue, Edmund has to do the difficult thing that we would all dread in this moment. He has to face his family that he's just betrayed and he's just been a traitor to. And this is how it reads in the book. It said, as soon as they had breakfasted, they all went out. And there they saw Aslan and Edmund walking together in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of the court. There's no need to tell you, and no one ever heard, what Aslan was saying 
But it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. As the others drew nearer, Aslan turned to meet them, bringing Edmund with him. Here is your brother, he said, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. Edmund shook hands with each of the others and said to each of them in turn, I'm sorry. And everyone said, that's all right. And later on in another book in the series, the tables have actually been turned, and now Edmund finds himself one of the kings of Narnia, and another traitor is brought to him into his presence. This is how it reads. Your majesty would have a perfect right to strike off his head, said Peridon. Such an assault as he made puts him on a level with assassins. It is very true, said Edmund, but even a traitor may mend. I have known one that did. Maybe you're feeling a little bit like Edmund today. Maybe this story, it resonates with you. Maybe a little too much for your own comfort. But once again, the beauty is that you are the ex- exactly the type of person that Jesus came to spend time with. When Jesus passed by Levi in his tax booth, he didn't turn and shame him or turn his back to him. He actually looked at him and he knew him and he still called him to follow him. He had a soft spot for the traitor and the outcast and the misfit. They weren't a lost cause to God, but an object of his grace and his mercy. And so the longing that we all feel for that family and that friend and that Levi felt in that moment was fulfilled by Jesus because Jesus is the friend of sinners. And not only is Jesus the friend of sinners, but we're reminded in this text that we're all one of those sinners as well. Jesus' dining with these outcasts was particularly scandalous to a group of people that were meeting for the first time in Mark's gospel, the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 16 says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with, with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They rose out of years and years of the people of God being surrounded by pagan nations, but unfortunately conforming to their ways. And so they went the opposite direction. So the Pharisees, Pharisee literally means uh, separated ones or holy ones. And so they had a serious reverence for God and his commandments and unfortunately swung the pendle in the wrong direction. Not only did they keep themselves unstained by the world around them, but they developed a disdain for anyone who didn't. Their pride led them to label these people that Jesus was hanging out with as outcasts and sinners. And so when Jesus came on the scene, he upset the natural order of things. The people that they would avoid, he was moving towards. It seemed like the people that broke all the rules were being awarded with Jesus' presence day in and day out, while those that relied on their own righteousness and felt no need for grace, no need for the physician were seemingly on the outskirts. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, said, the gospel does not say the good are in and the bad are out, nor the open-minded are in and the judgmental are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel says the people who know they're not better, not more open-minded, not more moral than anyone else are in, and the people who think they're on the right side of the divide are most in danger. See, the sad reality in this moment is these men were face to face with God incarnate and they had no idea of their need for him. 
It's like John Gerstner, the theologian, said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, but it's your damnable good works. And so in verse 17, when Jesus says, those who are well have no need of the physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He isn't saying that there's some people that don't need him, but he's saying that there's those that don't know that they need him. Because the righteous are in, the, in this context are like the person who is sick but won't go to a doctor. So righteous people believe they can heal themselves and make themselves right before God by being good and moral, but they don't see their need for the physician. And so the reality is for us probably today is that there's a lot of us in the room that maybe are resonating with and could find ourselves in some common ground with Levi and these people that are having a feast with Jesus, but there's probably more of us in the room that are in the place of the scribes here questioning Jesus. You don't need anybody's help. Maybe you grew up and from a young age you've been having to fend for yourself and everyone's let you down. You don't need anyone's help. Because of that, unfortunately, you find yourself blind to the need for the great physician. Maybe you grew up in the Bible Belt like I did, um, and like the Pharisees, followed all the rules, and now you're tempted to put your hope in your works instead of the, your hope in the finished work of Jesus. So, unfortunately, you've been blinded to your need for the physician. Or maybe you're here today, and you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years, and the day-to-day grind of prayer and Bible study and meditation on the word has actually made you numb to your actual felt need for the physician. Spiritual disciplines feel more like to-do lists to keep you in right standing with God as opposed to a moment in your day when you can just feel his love for you and rest in his presence. Jesus' desire for the Pharisees and for the scribes and for you and for me uh, was never to lock them out of the kingdom of God but to help them see their need for it. And so I... I just kind of mentioned this a second ago, but I grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up here in southern Oklahoma. I have incredible parents that took me to church every single time the, the, the doors were open. Um, literally anything that was going on at the church, if they were cleaning it, I think we were there to watch. So I, so I was there every Sunday morning. I was in Sunday school my entire life. Um, I went to youth on Wednesday nights. I was a leader in my youth group. Um, I was a leader in my school groups, but... Um, you know, my parents put a Bible in my hand at a young age and taught me to read it. And so in the church culture I grew up in, unfortunately, that led to some really legalistic tendencies. And so from a young age, I trusted in nothing but my works, what I could do for myself, how good I could be, how I could stay out of trouble. And so it blinded me to my need for the physician and blinded me to my need for God. And And it wasn't until I was 16 years old and literally woken out of a deep sleep in the middle of the night that I had an encounter with Jesus and saw my need for him that I was able to resonate with Levi and these outcasts and sinners for the first time, not to just see people that need Jesus as those people out there, but me as well. And so I was able to realize for the first time at 16 that Jesus is a friend of sinners and it's not just you people out here that are sinners, but it's me. I'm one of them as well. And then lastly, not only do we see that Jesus is a friend of sinners and that we're one of them, but that Jesus is a friend of sinners and so we should be too. The Pharisees and the scribes were an insulated and isolated people. Uh, In their dealings and especially in their dining, the Pharisees and the scribes would attempt to maintain an exclusive fellowship 
only with those just like them in order to avoid any ritual purity, impurity with those who didn't follow the code the way that they did. So it was a disgrace. It was a complete disgrace that Jesus would, would spend any time with them, especially to sit down and have a meal with them. He would have been unclean in their eyes. He would have been um, stained in their eyes. And yet this, once again, is where we see Jesus all through his earthly ministry moving towards those that may be labeled as the outcast or, outcast or the misfit or the dirty or the unclean. And so if I'm being honest, this is the easiest way to do life, right? I mean, it's, it's the easiest way to do life. I, I can, it, I'm, I'm resonating with you in the fact that I can have a long day at work, and the first thing that I want to do is pull in the driveway, go into the garage, shut the garage door, come inside, give my wife and my kid a hug and a kiss, and the first thing I want to do is go like pull the blinds and the curtains too to shut out everybody and anybody, especially now uh, in our new home, there's a, a neighbor kid that knocks on our door three or four times a day. And is, and is testing my, my patience and is so kind, but it's a new thing for me to deal with. But, but this is easier, right? If we're just all being easier, it's, it's being honest, it's easier. It's, you only have people over that are a good hang and that are, that are an easy hang. I, my wife and I, were, we joke kind of constantly about the fact that um, our best friends are our best friends because they're some of the only people that we can sit in a room with quietly and not talk to each other and still enjoy each other's company. And so that may be the easiest way to do things sometimes. And yeah, sometimes we need rest and we need Sabbath and we need a break to recharge, but that's not how we see Jesus moving towards people in his day-to-day life. And so the question that I've been asking myself over the last couple of weeks as I've been wrestling with this text and that I want to pose to us this morning is, is what kind of feast are you throwing? What kind of feast are you throwing? Does it resemble that of the one that Levi threw for Jesus that's, that's surrounded by people that are in need and people unlike you? Or is it more like a feast that the Pharisees and the scribes might have thrown, insulated and isolated from anything outside of us that could possibly cause us any heartache or trouble or frustration? And so if you're in a community group here at the church, what kind of feast is your community group throwing on a regular basis? And to go just a little bit farther, like, does anyone outside of Frontline Church even know that your community group exists? And not only with our community groups, but th- this goes even further to, like, the way that we deal with our neighbors and the way that we, that we uh, conduct ourselves at work, the way that we act at our kids' soccer games. What kind of feast are you throwing in all these situations and scenarios? See, in John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us. He said this, he said, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Levi was so utterly changed by Jesus that the first thing he wanted to do was go home, cook a huge meal, and go find all of his outcast and misfit buddies and invite them to come meet Jesus. And so what kind of feast are we throwing? History records that when Oliver Cromwell ruled England, the nation experienced a crisis. They ran out of silver and couldn't mint any new coins. And so Cromwell sent his soldiers to the cathedral to see if any silver was available. 
And they reported back to him that the only silver was the statues of the saints. To which Cromwell replied, melt down the saints and get them back into circulation. For the good of our world and for the glory of God, we're called to be a people that move towards others, a people of circulation, not a people of isolation and insulated from the world and strangers to it. Because Jesus is a friend of sinners, we should be too. In closing, Kent Hughes, he's a pastor, he had this to say. He said, many believe that just as Simon was later named Peter by the Lord, so Levi was likewise tagged Matthew which means gift of God by Jesus. If so, this was divine poetry because the covetous ripoff artist would become, as his new name suggested, a gift of God to his people. A gospel writer, a man that would go from being a traitor to one of the 12. And so the reality is this morning that none of us, like the scribes and the Pharisees, are good enough at following the rules to earn our way to this kind of friendship and family offered to us by God. And none of us are too dirty or tainted or too far gone to force us outside the love and the power of Jesus to save and to welcome us into the family of Jesus, the friend of sinners. Let's pray together. Father, I'm incredibly grateful this morning for the fact that You saw me exactly how I am. You saw me as the broken, traitorous person that moved away from you instead of towards you, moved away from people instead of of towards people. And you saw me and you knew me and you called me. And so I just pray, God, that if there's anyone in this room today that feels like They've done too much, they've gone too far, they're too dirty, that you would remind them of your pursuit of Levi, your pursuit of these other misfits and outcasts, as they were called, and that no one is outside of your power to save, no one is outside of your power to love and to call. And I pray, God, for all of us in the room that maybe have grown up in the church, have known uh, the right answers, have have been through all the classes. God, would you show us where we are relying more on our works than on your finished work for us today? And would you make us, Frontline Church, a people of movement and circulation out into our city? Would we love our neighbors well? Would we not be afraid of confrontation? Would we not be afraid of a little uncomfortableness? But would you make us a people who, like Levi, were so utterly changed that all we want to do is go call all of our other misfit buddies and invite them to the table to meet this King Jesus. We pray this in his name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.